Hello, and welcome to Walking with the Tengu, a podcast exploring classic texts for the modern martial artist. We'll continue our walk through the Budo Shoshinshu in today's episode, where we'll look at some thoughts about being considerate. Now, I'm not talking about simply cleaning up after yourself or holding a door for someone who is rushing to get inside. Those are pretty basic, elementary examples of consideration for our fellow human beings. The warrior class of pre-modern Japan at times took consideration to an entirely different level. And based on my experiences in modern Japan, I'd say that culturally, I've seen more thoughtful and considerate behavior as a norm in Japan than in just about any other culture I've spent time in. This perception is often linked to the concept of amotenashi, which could be translated as hospitality or service, though neither of those words really catch the full meaning of what amotenashi means. As I heard it described somewhere once, it's more than a genuine kindness towards guests. It's also a sharp eye for detail, awareness for individual needs, and the effort always to go the extra mile. It's this almost self-effacing care for other people that is subtle, unpretentious, and considerate, even when the other person is in the wrong, that Daidoji talks about today. Just a reminder that this podcast is kind of like my training notes. These are things I'm thinking about and pondering. As such, the readings and interpretations are heavily biased by my own philosophy and worldview. I highly recommend you read these works for yourself. Most of this chapter, after Daidoji's prefatory remarks, consist of a story. His initial comments, I suspect, would be rather unpalatable to modern ears, as it consists of advice about listening to one's Lord's words with humility, even if they're being unjust. Essentially, to place one's own concerns and personal ego aside in favor of preservation of the hierarchy. I'm sure we can all come up with examples of how a system like this can be abused, which is fine. We don't need any help seeing that side of this situation. What we need help understanding is when such a system can actually be helpful. The one exception Daidoji makes is when a lord's request goes against the principles of Bushido, and if there are mitigating circumstances, then he says it's okay to ask the elders, stewards, and chief retainers of one's clan to intercede on your behalf, but only after a time, so as to not make a big fuss for the group. As a linguistic side note, it is interesting that Daidoji uses the actual word bushido in the archaic Japanese here. As far as I know, this word wasn't particularly common throughout much of the samurai's history, and it didn't have a precise meaning the way it's been portrayed in the modern era. So, it left me musing on what Daidoji had in mind when he wrote it. Either way, submission is not a particularly popular ideology in my own country of the United States, arguably fairly characterized as overly individualistic. Actually, let's grab a definition for this word real quick. Individualism individualism is defined as belief in the primary importance of the individual and in the virtues of self-reliance and personal independence. Hmm. While I certainly favor a measure of individualism as an important part of being a balanced and happy person, 
I suspect in my own culture, it has been taken to an extreme, where maintaining one's individualism at the expense of all else is glorified as an ideal, no matter how it impacts others. This is where Daidoji's topic today could be helpful to a modern person. There's nothing wrong with strong individualism, but it must be tempered with an awareness and consideration of how our choices and actions impact other people. And sometimes that means willfully suppressing or modifying our actions from what we would normally do to something that takes into consideration the needs of other people than ourselves. The story that Daidoji relates comes from the Keicho era, which ended about 24 years before Daidoji was born. I sometimes wonder if these stories he relates were ones he was told by his father or grandfather. The Keicho era was begun in a time of war and saw the rise of the, of the Tokugawa to supremacy and the imposition of a period of relative peace and unification known as the Edo Bakufu that laid the stage for the world Daidoji would be instructing young samurai boys in. This was prior to the closure of the country, so I was surprised to learn while looking up this era that the Tokugawa sent a delegation to the Vatican in 1613, which traced its way across Europe, Mexico, and the Philippines before returning to Japan in 1620. A seven-year, round-the-world ambassadorial voyage from the Tokugawa was not what I was expecting to read about, since so much of the period leading up to the Meiji Restoration and the modernization of Japan was marked by extreme isolation. Either way, Daidoji tells us a story about a samurai named Tsukuda Mataemon, who was a retainer for Fukushima Masanori. This would have been a story from prior to the Tokugawa peace, so it was likely a kind of war story. Apparently, during a campaign, Masanori's warriors were encamped for the night. I imagine the tents laid out with precision, sentries posted, fires burning, simple food cooking, tired men taking care of their gear and getting ready to sleep, perhaps a slightly larger headquarters tent in the center of the camp, when suddenly there was some kind of surprise alarm. Daidoji doesn't tell us what it was, maybe he didn't know. I suppose it could have been a sentry calling out an alarm. Something raised the awareness of the camp in this time of war, and soldiers gathered at the headquarters to find out what was going on and what they should do. The next morning, Masanori, remember this is the big guy in charge of this camp, asked Mataemon why he'd responded the prior night with his spear sheathed. If you've never seen one before, spear sheaths were often made out of wood or leather and were tied to cover the blade, both to protect it from the elements and protect others from unintentionally being injured by the weapon. A modern comparison would be responding to some kind of imminent deadly threat with one's firearm holstered. It shows a, a lack of concern and preparedness, which in a group could mean the unnecessary deaths of one's companions and fellow warriors. If you've ever heard the phrase, the weakest link, it would be an indicator of someone who is the weakest link, who could be a kind of unintentional insider threat that compromised the safety of everyone else in the group. Apparently, Mataemon, the accused, heard this and responded by saying that Masanori's concerns were justified. As I just pointed out, in a group of warriors whose lives depend on each other, I too would be very concerned if I thought I saw some kind of dangerous behavior out of someone who I was supposed to trust my life with. Mataemon said that since last night had been cloudy, he had put a rain sheath on his spear 
and thus had arrived that way to the disturbance, so it was understandable why Masanori had thought he had arrived with a sheathed spear. Masanori apparently responded well to this, and life moved on. Later, apparently, Mataemon's companions came to him and said that they had all seen very clearly that he had arrived with an unsheathed spear, and that they were all willing to be witnesses. They couldn't understand why he'd made up the story that morning about having been using a rain sheath. Mataemon replied that everyone knows a rain sheath is just a single sheet of oil paper and is considered the same as an unsheathed blade. Now, if you don't happen to already know, weapon steel needs to be cared for and protected from moisture. So Mataemon saying that the prior night had been cloudy and had put a rain sheath on his spear meant he was concerned about caring for his weapon while also remaining ready for combat. People make mistakes. In the chaos of a potentially violent situation, very few people can recall with high levels of accuracy exactly what happened. I've seen this in witness statements in our time. Someone will see, say, a collision between two vehicles, and not a single one of the witness statements from bystanders, who were not even in any real danger, will be contradictory. When people are under stress and their bodies are responding in a fight-or-flight manner, Perceptions can be skewed, to say the least. As such, Mataemon pointed out that mistaking his spear as sheaths the night before was a very small matter. However, a mistake in the perception of a great general, on the other hand, was a much bigger deal. So Mataemon weighed the importance of calling out his superior's mistake and chose to respond the way he did out of consideration for Masanori. It was an easy-to-make mistake for anyone, to perceive things wrongly under stress, and it was a small matter for Mataemon to not make a big fuss out of a simple misperception and mistake. So he chose to accept the misperception and smooth over the concern for the good of his leader and his group. Daidoji reports that when Mataemon's companions heard this, they were impressed with the extent of his considerations. What can we say about this for a modern person? We live in a very confrontational time, in my opinion. Throughout most of human history, this would have been a very dangerous thing to do. People lived a lot closer to violence than we do today. I suspect that a large part of why civil discourse has grown more contentious of late is due to the fact that people, from any side of whatever spectrum your ideology falls on, no longer perceive the potential for consequences when communicating with others. We have pursued the dogma of being right so far that we'll bulldoze people with phrases, articles, opinion pieces in news media, all that support our pre-existing viewpoint, and in a lazy way, inundate our so-called opponents with so much information that there is no way a human can be capable of responding in a rational manner, which is why many people these days seem to have a tendency to either respond in anger and contempt or simply to cut off people they disagree with, usually with some dehumanizing excuse. I've heard excuses that can be summarized as, those people don't care about others, they're monsters. If they had any compassion, they would do X, or for our purposes, not do Y. It doesn't matter. Pick any major topic, and the primary response I see today is to devalue the humanity of the positional opponent and then write off their existence as unworthy. The idea that any of us have researched a topic beyond simply finding a few things online that support our pre-existing opinion is, quite frankly, an insult to actual research. 
I'm sure we can each think of some area of knowledge and experience where we have acquired more than the average person. Perhaps it is your martial art. But to think that we are qualified or have sufficiently researched or even begun to understand most topics is, quite frankly, overly optimistic at best and downright delusional the rest of the time. Even when we read that such and such an expert who is qualified to speak on a subject has an opinion one way or the other, we should still be careful because even they make mistakes. If you've never changed your opinion on a topic in your life, then you're either delusional or a liar. Likewise, nutritional and health-related advice seem to change by the decade. The science of understanding how both ourselves and the world around us works is never truly settled. It doesn't come up much in this podcast, but I actually have a bit more of a background in hard science than the average person, particularly when it comes to biology and genetics. And even there, people make mistakes all the time. A well-known one was in 1923, when an American zoologist, Theophilus Painter, declared, based on poor data and conflicting observations he had made, that humans had 24 pairs of chromosomes. From the 1920s until 1956, scientists propagated this fact based on Painter's authority, despite subsequent counts totaling the correct number of 23. Even textbooks with photos showing 23 pairs incorrectly declared the number to be 24, based on the authority of the then-consensus of 24 pairs. This seemingly established number generated confirmation bias among researchers, and, quote, most cytologists expecting to detect Painter's number virtually always did so, end quote. Painter's influence was so great that many scientists preferred to believe his count over the actual evidence, and scientists who obtained the accurate number modified or discarded their data to agree with Painter's count. This mistake stood as scientific fact until 1956. I've personally seen this in the lab. If the results of a research experiment does not conform to their preconceived idea of how it should conclude, even after double and triple checking their work, I've personally seen people massage the variables or discard data until they get the conclusion they want. The point being, we all make mistakes. I've certainly made mistakes in this podcast. And I'm sure when someone who is better versed in a particular subject comes along, they'll be able to point those out to me, which I welcome, because it only helps me better grow and learn. I too see people make mistakes and perceive things incorrectly in the martial arts. In my practice of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I hear all manner of myths and urban legends passed on as fact among the community, particularly when it comes to Japanese history and culture. Most of the time, I just remain silent. It's not worth being that guy who is always correcting people. We should all be a bit more strict with ourselves and patient with others, to paraphrase Marcus Aurelius. We're not going to change anyone's mind for the better by making a big fuss out of a mistake or misperception, even when lives are on the line. When emotions are high, stress warps our perceptions. And like Mataeman did for Masanori, a little more consideration between everyone could go a long way to lowering tensions and cultivating a greater sense of self-introspection, awareness, and compassion for humanity. As the old saying goes, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? So for this episode's Tengu challenge, I would encourage you to pay extra close attention in the days and weeks to come. 
Notice when you respond in a fight-or-flight manner where no real danger exists. Maybe it's a misperception at work, at home, or at school. Even a false accusation. There are numerous opportunities for this when training. Unintentional bumps and bruises, mistakes made when training a technique, or simply misunderstanding a training partner are all examples. Notice how your mind, body, and emotions are reacting. And then take a breath and a moment to consider before responding. Lashing out in an emotional way doesn't really ever fix things. Calmly responding can go a long way to not only solving the problem, but also reinforcing your credibility, or perhaps even removing that log from our own eyes. Like Mataemon's rain sheath on his spear, pay attention to where your own individual concerns will have a negative impact on others, and seek a less conflict-oriented solution. Spend some time thinking on this, and remember to not just talk about your philosophy, but like your martial art, live it. That's all for today. Please help the podcast out by sharing and telling people about it. The best way you can help us is just by letting people know that it's out there and what it's got you thinking about. Thank you for listening, and talk to you again soon.